And this book is done. Now, this is the next one. <laughs> we still have about 15, 10 or 15 minutes left at least. So I need you to bear with me because there's some prep that I have to do with you guys. Next week, I will be telling more Merged Worlds. But it will be the first Merged Worlds that has never been played by characters. It's just me continue the continuing the story through writing. Um, I have a lot written down. I've been writing it in my head for the last six to eight years. I know exactly where everything's going to go. Um, but I'm going to be starting that story next week. But I did, back in the day, after that adventure, write several little snippets of reading that I'd like to read to you guys. This is actually, this is going to be me reading you guys a couple little stories. These are the last things I ever read to them, and then we never played any further. So I'd like to read those to you guys now, just to kind of set this up. These little bits I tell you are going to be happening over the next several years. A time of relative peace in Serenity and Darstopia. I'm going to start with this one, which was about a year, six eight months to a year after they return home from the Darstopian games. Mercy is sitting in her office when a sharp knock on the door causes her to look up. Wesley, her squire, went to the door and opened it, allowing Sir Quan entrance. Wesley took over as squire when Flynn became a knight. The small, well-muscled man bowed respectfully to his queen before beginning to speak. My lady, there has been a serious incident. Her look of concern was enough to make him continue. Last night a farmstead was attacked, likely by brigands. It's a few hours from the city, and I'm sorry to report, there were no survivors. It was most brutal. Mercy was on her feet in an instant, calling for her armor and weapons. Quan immediately began preparations for the journey, and Wesley helps her prepare for the ride. In less than 15 minutes, she was on her way to the farmstead on the back of Irinar, Irinar, sorry, Irinar, her griffin. Unfortunately, Ulrich was away visiting Sir Seth at the western border, so she had Sir Quan with her instead. The man held onto her tightly, uncomfortable with the sensation of flying. What was a several-hour journey by horse was only minutes by Griffin. Mercy landed nearby, but not too close. She didn't want Irnar to upset the livestock. Seeing the Griffin settled in a small group of trees nearby, she and Quan made their way to the farmhouse. There were a group of men there already, other local farmers and local members of the Serenity military. She was greeted by Captain Whalen, a young but capable soldier. He told her what they knew so far. Sometime in the night, the farmstead had been attacked by a group of men, probably three or four. It had not been quick. The farmer, his wife, and their two children had been killed. Their two older boys had gone into town the day before to get supplies. When they returned to the home this morning, they discovered the carnage. Mercy went into the farmstead to inspect the damage. The captain had been about to advise her not to enter, but a single look from her in, uh, silenced him. The home was in shambles. It had been ransacked and anything not of value and portable was destroyed. The smell was horrible, caused by the grisly scene. It had been brutal and slow. The men who did this were no better than goblins. 
Mercy searched the house thoroughly, but found no clue to the identity of the attackers. Leaving the house, she had the captain take her to the two surviving boys. The oldest was 18 years of age, and his brother was 16. Both were understandably distraught, but both dropped to their knees at the sight of their queen. She bid them both to rise and embraced each of them, offering her sympathy. Speaking with them, she learned that once a month they were sent into town by their father to get supplies. They were given enough coin to spend the night at the local inn. The older boy was sweet on the innkeeper's daughter, it seemed. Mercy thanked them for speaking with her and excused herself to talk to Quan. Quan agreed that the regular visits to town would be easy for someone to take notice of. That meant this had, not been, this had been more likely a planned attack and not just something random. Mercy spoke to the captain about the local issues. He advised that there was the usual amount of criminal activity in the area, but nothing too bad. The Thieves' Guild was active all over Serenity at this point, and rarely was anyone from them ever caught other than the occasional pickpocket. It was well known that the Guild protected their own, but had a strict set of rules that none dare violate. Mercy and Quan thanked the captain, returning to Ironar. Uh, I didn't name the Griffin. I'm going to trip over that. <laughs> Ironar that made their and then made their way to Oakley, where the boys had spent the night. <coughs> Excuse me. News of the farmstead had already spread through the town, so Mercy's arrival was no surprise to Meg Aladonia, the town's uh, mayor of, of Oakley. She met Mercy immediately and was saddened to hear the details of the attack. They joined with their local captain and the town sheriff, and they spoke with the with the owner of the inn. Their questions, unfortunately, turned up no leads. Mercy spent the entire day assisting with the investigation and making arrangement for the farmer's burial. The Crown would be paying for everything as she attempted to ease the burden of the two boys. A lot of spend the whole day flying back and forth doing what she can. It was late that evening, well after dark, when Mercy finally returned to Serenity. She saw that the Griffin was fed and settled before returning to the keep. Very late at night. We're talking... One o'clock in the morning, maybe two. She checked in on Artis, who was fast asleep, before making her way to her quarters. She was greeted by a young maid who advised her that her bed had been turned down for the night. Lost in her thoughts of the day's events, Mercy thanked the young woman and dismissed her. Mercy took off her weapon belt and placed it on the table, and grabbed an apple from the bowl next to it, and made her way into the bedroom. As she entered into the room, she saw something on her bed. Her heart skipped a beat and she filled with dread. Sitting there was a small silver tray. Upon it sat a neatly folded piece of paper and a single rose, its petals as black as night. She stepped forward quickly and placed her apple on the bed. She gently picked up the paper and slowly opened it. There were only four words written on the page. Not in my kingdom. Almost as if on cue, Mercy heard the alarm sounded throughout the keep. The letter floated back onto the bed as Mercy ran from the room, her morning star appearing. She ran to the front balcony where several guards stood, as well as Quan, and he pointed down towards the road leading to town. Again, this is up on a hill, and there's a long road that leads kind of down to town, but there's a, you know, over the lake. Mercy could see that down the road a ways outside the keep, there appeared to be three crosses on fire. After a few moments, one of her soldiers came running up to her and reported that the three crosses of wood uh, that were currently burning had been stuck into the ground and lit. No one saw it happen. Nailed to each was what remained of a human male. Though burned badly, it was clear each had sustained multiple massive injuries. It was believed they were very likely still alive when the crosses were raised. 
The soldier handed Mercy a black rose, saying that one had been lying at the foot of each of the crosses. Mercy made her way back into the keep as Quan gathered the soldiers to put the fires out and deal with whatever was left. Mercy's mind ran in circles, trying to put together everything that had happened throughout the day. Then it hit her. The maid. She didn't know that girl, and she'd never seen her before. Quickly, she ran to the room of Olivia, who was head of the servants. She was already awake due to all the noise going on. Mercy described the girl, searching your memory for every detail. She stood approximately 5'6", with uh, black, yeah, black hair down to her shoulders. She was in her early 20s, human, attractive, and kind of thin. Mercy remembered she had, her skin was just a pale, pale hue darker, like tanned, kind of like Tevin, the tribal who was best friends with Draven. Olivia advised that there was currently no one in the keep that matched the girl's description. Calling for guards, Mercy organized a search of the entire castle. The entire place, from top to bottom, was searched, but no trace was ever found, and no one else ever saw anyone that looked like her again. <coughs> so that's the first one. This may take a few more minutes than I thought. I hope you guys don't mind hanging out a little while. If it's too much, I understand that people have to leave. I just would really like to get this stuff read to you guys, if that's okay. This one happens a little while after that. Not super long. Probably six months to a year tops. It had been an interesting day in the store. A couple of young men had come into town to restock on supplies after wiping out an infestation of ghouls far to the east. Like many of those who hunted the undead, they knew the names of Michael and Dandy very well. They were quite famous in the hunter community, both for their skill, knowledge, and adventures. Since Michael and Dandy had opened their store six months ago, even more hunters began to travel through Serenity. They supplied the equipment hunters needed, as well as holy water and some harder-to-find items. Built into the back of the shop was a small smithy, where Michael made custom pieces. He was growing his skill quickly, always motivated by his need to improve the hunt. Dandy had spent several hours listening to the two young men's tales. Not only did she find it incredibly exciting, but she was taking notes on locations and numbers of undead. Michael and Dandy had been tracking a pattern over the past year. Undead had begun to pop up in increasing numbers. The increase was small, but once noticed, it was easy to see. The day was finally over and Dandy was closing up. The ring of Michael's hammer had stopped and he came in through the back door. Dandy felt his strong, well-muscled arms wrap around her. She let him hold her for a minute before playfully swatting him away. With a smile, he stepped behind the counter and scooped up little Petal, who'd been playing with the dried chicken's foot. The little three-year-old giggled and gave him a hug. You stinky, she said, wrinkling her nose. Michael laughed and set her down. I smell like hard work, he replies. Stinky, said Petal, putting her hands on her hips. Michael put his hands up in surrender, mock surrender. Gather your things, Petal, Dandy said, smiling. Nodding, the little girl began to put her toys and several other things that were nearby in the little pouches on her belt because she is a kender, half kender. Dandy filled Michael in on the rest of the two young hunters' story as they closed the shop doors and made their way through the bustling streets towards their little home. As they made their way, they were regularly greeted and waved at, both being quite popular with the citizens. 
They reached their home just as the sun began to dip below the horizon. Petal yawned in Michael's arms as he carried her. As he carried her, Menandra was strapped to his back, the spear never far out of his reach. Dandy opened the door and they went inside. Michael carried Petal to her room to put her to bed. Dandy began to put away some of Petal's toys when she heard Michael call her from the bedroom. Grabbing a stuffed bunny Mercy had given Petal, she joined Michael in Petal's room. Michael pointed up to the shelf on the wall. It was far too high for Petal to reach. Once again, the toys upon it were a mess. Several other things seemed out of place as well. This had become a common occurrence and had them both quite concerned. On multiple occasions, they had awoken to find things moved or disturbed within their house. It was often items way too high or too heavy to have been moved by Petal, and they'd found no evidence someone had broken in. Through Menander, they knew there was no ghost or spirit in the home. Whatever their issue was, it was within the realm of the living. Several nights in a row, their friend Draven had watched their home and verified no one had approached or entered. Still, each morning, things were found out of place. Laying Petal to sleep, Michael verified the window was closed and locked before they stepped into the common room. Dandy lit a fire in the fireplace as they spoke. They decided they would seek out assistance from Artemis in the morning, something they'd been planning anyways. Ever since the incident at Darstopian Games several years ago, or years ago, Dandy had been nervous and more protective of Petal. Many, morning, uh, many mornings, Michael had woken to find her asleep in the chair next to Petal's bed, her dagger tucked into the belt of her house robe. The next day, Artemis came to the home, escorted by an incredibly large group of Templars, who waited outside. Artemis was aware of the issues they were having and was happy to help her friends any way that she could. Artemis cast several spells, checking their home for any magical spells that may have been cast upon it. But she found nothing. She performed a cleansing ritual, and then a blessing ritual as well. Michael could see Dandy felt much better once Artemis was done. They sat together and enjoyed a lunch of fruit, wine, and pheasant. They discussed the goings-on of the kingdom in the temple. Artemis told them how well Seraph was doing in his training, but sadly noted that she wished he had some more friends. Most of the other children were very uncomfortable around him. Petal finished eating and moved into the other room next to the fire and began playing with her letter blocks that Lucas had carved for her. Dandy told Artemis about the two hunters from the day before. Mommy, look, said Petal from the other room. Yes, dear, that's very interesting, called back Dandy before continuing with her exciting story. A moment later, Petal called out again, Mommy, come see. Mommy's talking with Annie Artemis, sweetie, she replied. Michael smiled and motioned to Dandy to continue as he rose to check on their daughter. A few seconds later, his voice was heard. Dandy, Artemis, come in here, please, very slowly. Alerted by the sound of his voice, both women rose quickly, a knife immediately appearing in Dandy's hands. Both women moved silently and smoothly, both well-practiced after years of adventuring together. Dandy stepped through the doorway with Artemis behind her, the words of a spell on her lips. The two women stopped immediately, and the dagger fell from Dandy's hand, sticking into the floor below. Petal sat on the floor, playing with her blocks. Three of them were currently floating in the air in front of her, moving in small circles as she wiggled her tiny fingers. Seeing her mother, she moved her eyes to Dandy and away from the blocks. Two of them fell to the floor. With a loud pop, the third turned into a large yellow butterfly that began flittering around the room. Petal clapped and giggled in delight. Dandy looked at Michael, helplessly confused. I think we're going to need to call speak to someone at the Mage Tower, he whispered. 
So that's that's Pedal's introduction. So see if you guys can figure out what path people are going to take. The house of Shen Quan was unlike any other in Serenity. Its design was foreign but beautiful. He had overseen its construction personally. A large room had been built that served as a training dojo. It was here that he paced in circles around a young boy no more than four years old. This is around the same time period. Again, he called out. The little boy standing in the center of the room immediately began moving in a sequence of attacks and movements known as a kata. For several moments, he moved around the dojo, releasing a flurry of kicks, punches, and blocks. Finally, he stopped and resumed his original stance. Quan moved before his son. Ran looked just like his father. He was very short, with short black hair. He was already well-muscled due to his father's training, and he was also a very quiet child and very observant. After telling his son how well he had done, he did ask him, how is it that we survive? He said, through honor and through justice. And what makes up honor? He said, family is the tree. Honor is its roots. And he looked right at the boy and said, and what is our oath? I shall protect my lord in the line of Hareton Uthwiston until my last breath leaves me. My blood before their blood, my life before their life. Quan nodded in satisfaction. The two bowed to each other and left the dojo. Two washed in a bays and outside, the sun warming their backs. Ran couldn't help but stare at the scars on his father's body from countless battles. His heart filled with pride at the thought of his father bravely protecting the queen. Ran idolized his father and was in awe of the royal family. His entire life he'd been told how important it was to protect them and that one day that responsibility would fall to him. He worked very hard at his studies and even harder at his training. His father had taught him the deadliest weapon was his own body. Boys, lunch is ready, came the voice of Kara, Ran's mother, from inside the house. The two men joined her and began the meal. Quan told them he shouldn't be gone more than a week. He was leaving that afternoon to visit the town of Willowin to the northeast to assist in a land dispute. Afterwards, he was going to visit his friend Frank at his keep in the north. Ran asked if he could go too, but Quan said no. He and Sir Devin would be traveling quickly. Seeing his son's disappointment, he added in a couple years when Ran was older, it would be very different. Besides, says Quan, you are responsible for this house while I'm away. You must look after your mother. Kara smiled at her husband. The two of them were completely in love, and he hated having to leave her. I will, says father. Or, I will, father, says Ran. Should I protect the queen as well? Quan laughed and ruffled his son's hair. Not yet, my son. The Knights of Serenity will see to her safety, but don't worry. Your day will come when you shall join their ranks. Quan packed his things, and Ran helped him saddle his horse. Quan kissed Kara lovingly and embraced Ran. Then, climbing upon his horse, he headed north to meet Sir Devon. Ran watched his father ride away long after he'd been lost from sight. He dreamed of battle and honor and protecting the crown. Turning, he looked towards Serenity Keep, its silhouette barely visible in the distance. One day he knew he would stand within its halls. My blood before her blood, my life before her life, the boy whispered. Okay. Oh my goodness, I'm so sorry this is taking so long. I'm, gonna, I'm trying to hurry. 
Construction should be complete in about two more weeks, said Jorn. As long as the last shipment of lumber arrives on time, I foresee no complications. Dar stared at the plans for his newest ship, which were currently being built in the part of Kroniar, port of Kroniar, just a few miles away. Satisfied, he stood up and quickly grabbed onto the desk to keep from falling over as pain shot up his right leg. Should I call for a healer, sir? asked Jorn calmly. Darsh waved his hand, implying the idea unfounded. It'll be fine, he said. It's just a sprain. Damn, that bugger could kick. Darsh was referring to a minotaur named Derig that he'd faced in the arena the day before. Uh, the annual games had been held and Darsh's clan had been challenged by another. Instead of choosing a champion to re represent his house, Darsh had accepted it personally. Derig had been a skilled fighter, but Darsh easily defeated him, though he'd sustained several injuries himself. The success of Darshtopia and his incredibly profitable dealings with the Southern Kingdoms had made Darsh very wealthy. He had three new ships and was now considered a noble of high rank within the Empire. This, of course, made him a target for other ho others hoping to increase their station. Lyra entered the room and saw Darsh favoring his good leg. Are you sure you wish to come with us? Bah! exclaimed Darsh. I'm fine, I tell you. It's just a bruise. I've been hurt worse by a butter dish. Lyra rolls her eyes and left to get the children ready for temple. The whole family was attending together, which wasn't a common occurrence since they had relocated to the islands of Darshtopia. Do I have to go? Tyrion asked his mother as she entered the common room. I want to go outside and play. Now I will not hear another word about it, said Lyra forcefully. You can play when we get back. Now put on your sandals and try not to get dirty. Please try to behave like your sister. Maeve was sitting at the table eating some grapes. She was dressed in her nicest clothes and was incredibly excited. She loved going to temple. Learning about the gods and hearing their stories was her favorite thing in the world. It had been a long time since she'd seen the great temple of Kronear and was looking forward to it. Within the hour, everyone was loaded into the family carriage and on their way. Maeve was playing with Varian while Tyrion sulked. Tyrion is the eldest son. Maeve is the twin. They're not identical twins. Varian was the child that was... Uh, she, his wife was pregnant with while they were off fighting the Emperor. That's the third child. Finally, they arrived. Maeve stared in wonder at the massive building, ornately designed and carved. The Minotaur respected all gods, but specifically worshipped Corum, god of war. They found their seats, and soon the temple sermons began. They were much harsher and loud than the small sermons Maeve was used to in the small chapel back home. She found herself drawn in and excited by the energy of it all. After a while, the high priest directed all the children in the temple to go with a small group of clerics. Maeve excitedly rushed up, the first to be in line. After the children left, the sermons became a bit more intense. Darsh remembered attending temple as a boy with his parents. He'd always thought the sermons exciting, but as an adult, he'd spent a lot of his life among the other races of the world. He found himself missing the quiet, reflective sermons of his friend Artemis in Serenity. Eventually, the sermon came to a close, and Darsh stood outside speaking with Jorn and a couple members of the Merchants Guild while Lyra fetched the children. The Guild had been trying to recruit him to a council position, but Darsh kept declining. He spent far too much time on Darshtopia to attend regular council meetings. Just then, Lyra came up to them, and she was accompanied by a cleric Darsh could tell by markings on his robe was a very high rank. Uh, Dear, Father Jurok would like to speak to us, she said. Darsh excused himself and joined Lyra and the cleric. They stepped away from the others near a large fountain where they could speak privately. What can we do for your brother? asked Darsh. It's about your child, the cleric replied. 
I swear, said Darsh angrily, I will tan that boy's hide. I've told him time and time again. The clerk quickly raised his hands, interrupting him. Uh, no, no, my lord, Fordhammer. It's your daughter, Maeve. Both Darsh and Lyra looked at each other, startled. What has she done? Lyra asked. She loves Temple. I can't imagine she'd misbehave. Oh, she hasn't, said the cleric, smiling. In fact, I don't think I've ever seen a more attentive and interested child. Her desire to know more about the gods is genuine and refreshing. That's why I wish to speak with you. I was thinking you may wish to enroll her at the, at the temple. Darsh was completely taken by surprise. You mean to start training to be a cleric? The cleric nodded. Her love of the gods is powerful. I feel the path of the clergy will call to her. What do you think? Lyra asked Darsh. Darsh pondered the thought. He'd always assumed his daughter would become a warrior or a ship's captain. She was already a much better fighter than her brother. Still, the thought of a cleric in the family kind of made him want to smile. Finally, he spoke. We will present the choice to Maeve. I will not try to choose my daughter's destiny for her. If she wishes, we will enroll her once we return home. Either way, we'll respect her decision. The cleric smiled and thanked them for their time, and bowing, he excused himself. Wrapping her arms around Darsh, Lyra asked, do you think she'll be able to handle it? Thinking of his daughter's fiery personality, Darsh could only chuckle. I'm more concerned for the poor deity the child chooses to worship. The two laughed together as they made the way towards their children and an interesting conversation with their daughter. <clears throat> oh my God, there's so much here. Mercy moved... <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to... Mercy moved qu quietly, crawling behind the barricade. On the ground around her lay the bodies of her allies... It had been a brutal battle, and the casualties had been high. Suddenly, she heard a noise behind her. How did they get past the defenses? She felt swift drop, drop from her, bow, her brow as she clenched her weapon in both hands. She knew she'd only have one chance. If her reflexes were off, she was dead. Quickly, she spun as fast as possible, but in her heart, she knew it was too late. Whoomp! went the pillow as it struck her head. Ah! Mercy cried out. In her best death noise, you got me! She stumbled backward in an exaggerated death throw and fell onto the pile of toys and stuffed animals around her. Artis giggled at her mother's antics. She crept closer to the woman who lay still. She carefully nudged her with her toe. Quickly, Mercy grabbed her and pulled her down, tickling her. Artis cried out in laughter and surprise. They laughed together and Mercy gave her daughter a big hug before letting her go. Rising, she made her way around the wall of blankets to her desk. A knock came from the door in the other room. Making her way into the common area of her quarters, she entered, opened the door to find Flynn. Greetings, my lady, he said. Mercy invited him in, and he'd been uh, invited him in. He'd been away the past few weeks to Turnbull. She'd been waiting for his return. Seeing him, Artis rushed him. He grabbed her and spun her around in delight. Artis considered each of the knights her uncles. They, in turn, loved her dearly. Setting her back down, she reached, he reached into his belt and pulled out a stuffed horse. Artis squealed in delight and hugged it, then showing it to her mother. Mercy nodded and told her to go play in the other room while she spoke to Flynn. The little girl thanked Flynn and ran back to her room. Mercy looked at Flynn and frowned. I thought I told you all to stop bringing her presents every time you return from somewhere. Flynn just smiled. Ah, I saw it and I couldn't help myself. The two sat down on the couch. Well, if she becomes a spoiled brat, I'm sending her to live with you. The two laughed together, and then Flynn began his report. 
The town of Turnbull was the most southeastern of Serenity cities. Its mayor had requested help with an issue. Seemed a couple of horses had been stolen. That in itself was a minor thing, but two days later one of them had been found. Well, its head was. It appeared his head had been ripped from the body, not cut off, but there were no signs of giants or anything else in the area strong enough to do so. Flynn and Seamus had been unable to find any clues to the cause of it. As Flynn continued, Mercy became aware of Artis's voice. She was chatting up a storm. Mercy rose, waving to Flynn to hold a moment. Looking into Artis's room, she saw sitting, her sitting uh, around her little table, having a tea party with her dolls and new horsey. Smiling, she turned to walk back and stopped again. She had heard Artis say, Mommy worries about them. Auntie Artemis is re has really strong magic, though. Looking back in at Artis, she asked, Honey, who are you talking to? The boy, replied Artis, quite casually. What boy, sweetie? asked Mercy again. He's my friend, the little girl replied. He plays with me. She pointed to the little empty chair across from her. Mercy stepped in the room. It was clear there was no one there. Mercy smiled at her daughter, bending down next to the little chair. Well, tell him I said hello. Artis rolled her eyes. He's right there. He can hear you. Mercy stifled a grin, kissing Artemis on the head, and left the room. Going back to Flynn, she slowed just a second. For an instant, she could have sworn she heard two children giggling. Shaking her head at her own silliness, she sat down and urged Flynn to continue. Oh my goodness. Seraph stood there, his back to the wall. The small alley... Was away, uh, was away from the bustling parts of Serenity and secluded. The three older boys surrounding him were much larger, each being around 15 years in age. At 11, Seraph was average height. Seraph knew he was forbidden to leave the temple alone, but occasionally when the opportunity presented itself, he would sneak away to roam the city. His parents were none the wiser. Today they thought him studying in his room, which he spent quite a bit of time doing. Other than his parents... Tevin and the Templars, he didn't really have any friends. He was uncomfortable around other children, as most felt the same way. Not only did his long white hair and pale skin set him apart, but his training gave him a much more serious and adult outlook on the world around him. Seraph knew one of the boys, the largest. He was Ulf, the son of a butcher. At the last Unity Day, Seraph had defeated him in the children's rock-throwing event, and Ulf had not forgotten. Well, twerp, out in the streets without your mother and freaky father babysitting you, said Ulf, drawing laughs from his friends. Seraph did not answer. He just stared forward. He knew Ulf was trying to bait him, and Seraph was forbidden to fight. His parents knew he was capable of severely injuring others. Got nothing to say, asked Ulf. Maybe you think you're better than us. Think just because your mom's a cleric that you're something special. Seraph didn't answer, just continued to look Ulf in the eyes which only angered Ulf more. Answer me, yelled Ulf. He swung his meaty fist and struck Seraph in the stomach. Seraph had braced himself, but Ulf was strong and it knocked the wind from him. Ulf's friend chuckled at the sight, which only spurred the bully on. Seraph saw the punch coming, but dared not block it. The force of the blow knocked him back against the wall, and he could feel blood drip from his cut lip. We'll teach you what happens when freaks walk our streets alone, said Ulf. You're going to learn to... Just then, Ulf's face went red and his eyes bulged out. Grabbing his groin, he toppled over. Seraph and the other boys looked in surprise. 
Standing there was a young boy, no more than seven or eight. He was well-dressed with brown hair past his shoulders. Three-on-one doesn't seem very fair to me, said the boy, smiling, winking towards Seraph. Get him, Ulf managed to gasp, slowly trying to stand up. Ulf's friends rushed the boy, who'd taken a few steps back. They struck at him, but the boy blocked their attacks easily, striking them in return. Seraph could easily see the boy had been trained to fight. He moved with precision and speed. Still, the two boys had some experience as well. The young boy managed to kick the knee out from under one of them, causing him to fall, but he received a punch from the other bully, knocking him back. The young bully quickly recovered as Ulf finally stood and charged in. Without missing a beat, the young boy spun and dodged, causing Ulf to run by. With a quick to his backside, Ulf stumbled forward and into a pile of trash and debris. Suddenly, the young man was struck from behind by one of the bullies. He was grabbed by the other and held while the other struck him. It was all happening so fast. Stare stood there, torn. He was forbidden to fight, but here he saw a small child he didn't even know fighting his battles for him. Seraph saw Ulf rise from the trash. In his hand, he held a heavy piece of wood. There was hatred in his eyes as he moved towards the boy, raising it in the air. Something inside Seraph snapped at that moment. He filled with an uncontrollable rage that filled every part of him. No, he thought, I will not allow this. He moved across the alley with a speed unmatched by a normal child. As Ulf's club came down, it suddenly stopped, caught in the hand of Seraph, who had suddenly appeared before him. Seraph squeezed his hand and the wood shattered into a hundred pieces. Ulf stumbled back in surprise, but Seraph didn't stop. He saw only red. His fist moved too quickly for Ulf to see, striking him in the face and sending him backwards to the ground. Seraph spun and closed the space between the other boys in an instant. Before they knew what was happening, they found themselves injured and on the ground as well. Turning, Seraph walked back to Ulf. His anger was driving him, and with one hand he grabbed Ulf by the throat and lifted him off the ground and into the air. Ulf struggled to breathe as Seraph snarled at him. Seraph felt pain in his mouth, and all he could hear was a sound like deep beating drums. His vision was tinted red, and he snarled again. He could see the pain and fear in Ulf's eyes. Just then he felt a hand on his arm. His head spun quickly, furiously, and he found himself staring into the face of the little boy. The lad had a calm but serious expression. I think that's enough, don't you? He said. Staring at the boy in confusion, Sarah felt his anger start to fade. His vision became less clouded and the pain in his mouth lessened. He set Ulf down but did not let him go. He pulled Ulf's face close to his own, looking him in the eye, Seraph whispered, Bother us again, and I will kill you. He released the bully who coughed and gasped for breath. Stumbling to his friends, the three older boys ran out of the alley without looking back. Seraph stood there for a moment, gathering himself and taking in all that had happened. The boy watched in silence, giving him the time he needed. Finally, Seraph said, Thank you. I am in your debt. The boy smiled and replied, Not at all. My father says that a good man helps those who need him, not for reason or for reward, only because it is the right thing to do. Seraph couldn't help but smile, knowing his father would say something like the same. Seraph wiped away the blood from his lip and stared at it, trying to figure out how he was going to explain this to his mother. I must return to the temple. I have to tell my parents what has happened. My mother will be furious that I left and got into a fight. The young boy nodded in understanding. Then I shall go with you. I will confess my part and request I be included in any punishment you receive. Honor demands it.
Sarah smiled and then somewhat nervously asked, maybe, you know, another time you might like to come back to the temple? I would love to, replied the boy, smiling. The two new friends turned and began the walk back to the temple. My name is Seraph, Seraph said a bit nervously. Well met, Seraph, replied the boy. My name is Deacon, Deacon Firemoon. Take a sip here real quick. I've got one. i got one more. Kind of. <clears throat> this is still that one. From a rooftop nearby, a shadow watched the two boys depart. Draven smiled, proud of his son. He'd worried for a moment, but was glad his son had been able to regain control of himself. He too began to make his way back to the temple. He would make sure the boy's punishments wasn't too severe. As he moved across the rooftop, his mind began to make preparations. He saw something in his son today and knew it would be, wouldn't be much longer. He had much to do to be ready. This one takes place several months after that one. Oh, you like that one? Oh, cool. <laughs> this one takes place a couple months after that. Artemis was sitting in the chapel teaching several children when Percy burst into the room. A very grave expression. I wonder if anybody remembers who Percy is. Artemis rose to her feet immediately concerned. Percy had been assigned to watch over Seraph and Deacon that morning as they'd gone into Serenity to visit the marketplace. My lady, Percy reported, there's something wrong with Seraph. He's become very ill. Artemis left the children with a young cleric that was assisting her and quickly followed Percy to Seraph's room. Deacon sat nearby on a bench, looking very worried. Entering the room, her heart nearly stopped. Seraph was writhing in his bed in pain. Three Templars were holding him down, though it obviously looked like it was difficult to do. Artemis cast a spell quickly, but his malady was not made clear. Turning to Percy, she asked, Tell me everything that happened. Percy related the day's events. They'd spent most of the day at the market. They'd spent a while by the lake and were about to start heading back as the sun began to go down. Very quickly, it set upon Seraph. One moment he seemed fine, though a bit tired, and suddenly he was clutching his stomach. Artemis's next thoughts went to poison. She attempted to cast several spells of healing and purification, but nothing seemed to help the boy. Left with no other option, Artemis prepared to cast her most powerful healing spell. It will not help him, came a voice from behind her. Artemis turned as Draven and Tevin entered the room. Draven moved to Seraph's side and placed a hand on his forehead. Lifting the boy's eyelids, he could only see the whites of his eyes. Draven turned to Tevin and said, gather his things. Tevin nodded and left the room. What is it? asked Artemis in tears. Is he sick? Is it poison? No, said Draven, a sadness in his voice. He's hungry. Draven pulled a small silver flask from under his shirt. Seeing it, Artemis's fears were confirmed. She had seen Draven drink from the enchanted bottle many times. Putting it to Sarah's lip, the boy drank eagerly. Once he was done, he lay back in the bed, no longer in pain, and finally asleep. Draven took Artemis into the hall and embraced her. We must leave immediately, he said. We'll return within a couple of months. Must it be so long, Artemis pleaded. We have discussed this, he replied. We knew this day may come. Now that it has, he must learn to live with it. This is a part of him. I cannot teach him what he needs to learn in serenity. Artemis nodded and they embraced again. Tevin returned a few moments later with Seraph's traveling pack and supplies. 
Seraph was awake again, though he looked weak. They helped to dress him and prepare for the journey. Within a few moments, Draven and Seraph were on their way, headed north into the forest. Artemis sat alone in her room. She knew Draven would keep Seraph safe, but she could only think sadly about his future. She hoped he was strong enough to handle what he had to do. Two months later, they returned. Seraph seemed normal, if maybe a bit more serious. He never told her what happened while he was gone, and she never asked. She understood that this was one thing that only Draven could help him with. Seraph settled back into his normal life as if he'd never left, but every so often, every few months, he and his father would leave Serenity for several days together, to where Artemis never knew. And now I have one last one, which will put us to the end of everything that was written. And this takes place almost right before where next week's story happens. And the last thing I ever wrote before two days ago, or a few days ago. Maeve and Artis exited the temple together and began to make their way to the nearby Serenity Lake. The two girls had spent most of their day together in their studies and were now free to enjoy the sunny spring afternoon. The two had known each other their entire lives, even though Maeve was a couple years older, they'd always been best friends. Walking down the small hill towards the water, they could see their destination. Up ahead, sitting under a tree with her nose buried in a book, was Petal, the third member of their little group. Seeing her lost in her book, Maeve groaned and Artis giggled. Both of them knew that Petal could sit silently reading for hours, but once done, getting, to, getting her to stop talking about what she read was nearly impossible. All three girls were, uh, oh, all three girls spent the greater part of their days studying. Artis and Maeve were both training to be clerics, and Petal had been training at the Mage Tower since she was a child. She's still a child, but a little child. Artis's mother, the Queen, was a devout follower of Zorn, the God of Truth. Artis had always felt the call of the church, and once she'd expressed her interest, the Queen approved her to begin studying at the temple under Brother Fallon, a cleric of Zorn. Maeve, too, had always been drawn to the church. Her father had enrolled her in the temple on Kroniar, the Minotaur Island. It was only a couple months before it had become clear she did not fit in. She questioned everything about the Minotaur society and religions. Her teachers advised Maeve's father that her path was with another god, not one commonly followed by the warlike Minotaur race. Her father immediately contacted the Temple of Serenity, and the Lady of the, temp the Temple agreed to take on the responsibility of Maeve's training. Maeve began spending three out of every four months in Serenity, and there she was introduced to the entire pantheon of faiths. She too was immediately drawn to the god Zorn, and began training with artists under Brother Fallon. Petal's path had been clearly laid before her. Her parents were undead hunters. Much to their surprise, they learned when Petal was still a, a wee, wee taught, I wrote that down, wee taught that their daughter had the ability to tap into wild magic. It was a very powerful form of magic, but if not controlled, could destroy her. Her parents had contacted the local mage tower who agreed to train her. Petal loved magic and knowledge, and very quickly excelled. Reaching Petal, the two other girls waited patiently for a minute while Petal found a good stopping point. Finally, she, she closed the small tome and placed it into her bag before standing to greet them. She grabbed her hoopack that had been leaning against the tree and, as expected, began to talk their ears off as the, as the other girls and her made their way back to the city towards the keep. The people of Serenity would all wave, greet them, or bow as the girls passed. 
Everyone recognized the princess and her friends. The queen was adored by her people, and so was Artis. Artis took it all in stride, waving back. Like her mother, she was uncomfortable with the attention, but she understood her role. Um, she always waved back and smiled, but always declined the gifts of food or treats offered. Your shadow is back, whispered Petal suddenly. Sighing, Artis began to look around the area while Petal and Maeve giggled. It took a few minutes to find him, like it always did. Finally, she spotted the young boy standing against the wall nearby. Once spotted, he quickly moved towards them. Though just around the same age as them, uh, oh, here, though, he moved with a confidence and fluidity that surprised people. Coming before Artis, he quickly dropped to one knee. The people around them saw this, and figuring something important was happening, they all began to take a knee as well. Petal giggled, and Maeve laughed loudly. Artis went red in embarrassment. Stand up, Ran, she whispered, waving her hands upward quickly. The boy stood, and Artis grabbed his arm, and pulling him with her, led the group down the street. How many times have I told you to stop doing that, she said, berating him. Ran just smiled and replied, it is my duty. Throwing her hands in the air in defeat, she exclaimed, I give up! You're hopeless. I give up. Rand stepped into place at the rear of the group. He was the son of one of the Knights of Serenity. Everyone, oh, Knights of Serenity. Everyone knew Rand dreamed of becoming a knight like his father. He spent any chance he could near Artis, hoping for the chance to prove himself to the princess. Artis liked the boy well enough, though she found his constantly being underfoot and awkward adherence to protocol quite annoying. She learned it was best to let the boy be part of the group rather than have him constantly and awkwardly following them from a distance. He had quickly become their friend and companion. Walking down the street, they were an impressive sight. Even at age 11, Maeve was over six foot six, tall and stronger than most human males. Leaving the city proper, they made their way up the road leading to the keep. Each soldier saluted as they passed. Making their way through the grand hall, they headed towards the kitchen to get a bite to eat. Turning the corner, they stopped suddenly, nearly running into the two boys standing there. The young men were dressed well. Seraph's long white hair flowed loosely over his shoulders. His pale skin almost glowed in the dark corridor, a stark contrast to the black clothing he always wore. As always with him was Deacon. The two boys were rarely seen apart. Seraph was the son of the Lady of the Temple and was the eldest of all of them. And Deacon was the son of the King of Firemoon, one of Serenity's allies. Like Petal, he was born with the gift of wild magic and had come to the Mage Tower to train. Immediately, Petal and Deacon began discussing the day's lessons. The two studied together at the tower. Petal was a much better student, devoted completely to the magic. Deacon had a natural gift for it, but is equally devoted to his combat and weapons training. He'd recently begun training with Seraph, who had been training under his father for years. What are you boys up to? asked Artis. Heading back to the temple, replied Seraph. After dinner, we're going out onto the lake. Entering the race this year, asked Maeve. She was referring to the boat race, which was held at the Serenity Unity Festival every year. The festival was only a month away, and everyone was looking forward to it. No, said Seraph. I've not decided if I'll compete this year. Seraph rarely participated in the events. His incredible strength and speed he had inherited from his father. They made few events... Oh, sorry. He, he had in, incredible strength from his father. Uh, there were a few events he would not easily win, and as such, chose not to enter. That's too bad, said Maeve. I think I could have taken you in the wrestling this year. She flexed her incredibly muscled arms. 
Seraph only smiled and turned to Deacon. He said, We should get going. I don't want to be late. Saying their good boys, the two boys left, heading back towards the temple. The three girls and Rand continued into the kitchen where they were fed. Their conversation now filled with talk of the upcoming festival. Petal was excited by all the displays of magic. Maeve was excited about the competitions and getting to see her family, who should be attending. And Rand looked forward to seeing the knights compete in the joust. Artists looked forward to all these things as well, but she also dreaded them. As a princess, she would have a lot of responsibilities and would be involved in a lot of pomp and protocol. Still, it was an exciting time in Serenity. As the conversation continued, she found herself drawn into the plans as well. And that was the last thing I ever wrote or read to the players playing this, this storyline. But what I've done there is introduce the children in a bit more of a mature situation and role to give you guys an idea of how much time has passed. These were segments that happened over every few years. Um, and this is where we're going to be picking up in the next adventure. Um, and again, I want to stress that uh, everyone, Mercy, Dan, they're all still in there. It's not like we're not going to see any stories of them anymore. There's just now some new folks who are going to be popping in as well. I'm glad that you guys have enjoyed it. Okay, Whew, I'm white, and my throat's sh killing me. So I'm going to slide off here because I've run over an hour late. I'll probably have to break this into two audio podcasts. But thank you very much for watching. Whether you're listening to this today, tomorrow, or ten years down the road, it'd be awesome if you'd click like and maybe subscribe to the channel. Uh, this is also available on iTunes and Spotify as an audio podcast, completely free. If you have iTunes or Spotify, it'd be awesome if you'd give it a follow, a like, or a review, whatever it is on there. Uh, I would definitely appreciate it. I'm doing my best to get it in the eyes of as many people as possible. But once again, thank you so much for letting me tell my story and share all of this. Over 60 episodes it took to tell all of the original story. And I'm just getting started. So, thank you all for coming. As always, a special thank you to my moderators and members for helping support the channel and supporting all the fun stuff I get to do. An extra special thank you to all of you who listened to my story today. I appreciate it. All right. Going to call that one a day. And hopefully one or two of you will come back next Thursday to hear the next chapter begin. You all have yourselves a wonderful night.